Welcome back to another episode of Startup Therapy. I'm Will Schroeder, founder and CEO of Startups.com with my co-host, Elliot Schneer, the COO of Startups.com. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that sadly, a lot of our listeners actually understand too well. And that's the point at which we're no longer really big shareholders in our own business anymore. In fact, at some point, we're looking at the cap table and we're just employees. In fact, <laughs> some of the people on our cap table, people that were just joining the company, might actually be getting more stock than we do. We've been at this too long. We've been crammed down time and time again. We can't see the future because, again, no matter what happens, we are kind of got a tough stake in this company. And we can't get out of the past because we've got so much invested in this thing. When we get to this point, when we get to the point where we feel trapped, What's going through our head? You've talked to lots of founders. You've been through this yourself. What's going through your head at which point you look at the cap table and you say, I'm fucked? It's a really, really tough situation and happens probably more often than people appreciate. But when you get to that point, you know, seven to 10 years down the line, and you've worked so desperately hard to build this and solve this problem. And at the end, your reward is going back to being an employee, oftentimes something that you really didn't want to do to start with. It's devastating. It's gut-wrenching because you're in this state of paralysis where, in some cases, from a metric standpoint, you did your job and grew this thing, but circumstances compressed down your equity, and now you're kind of just another employee. Right, which is weird because you're more tethered to it than anybody. I mean, you, you are tied to the cap table. And to be fair, employees share this same issue too, right? You know, hey, I've been with this company forever. I've got some stock. I want it to pan out, but I've got so much invested. I don't want to leave all these different things. But when an employee leaves, there's not that much friction. I mean, they can leave. They can go get another job. People kind of get it. When the founder leaves, that's an extinction level event. Some cases, you know, that ripples across the entire company can affect valuation, can affect recruiting, can affect media perception, customer perception. Not to mention, very awkward conversation with the board. If you're getting this far into it, if you're getting this far into building your company, and at that point you're saying to yourself, this just isn't worth it anymore, what do you see your options as? Well, it's tough, man. I mean, there's outside of you know the time you've put in, there's a level of identification. And we've talked about this before. Ooh, that's a good point. You yeah. know, this is your baby. You know, this this was your problem. You've led it for seven years and you've really built a, an exceptional relationship with this startup. So to your point earlier, look, people that work for the company can leave, right? Your COO, I'm not going to do that, can, <laughs> can leave. And in some cases, get an even better gig because they just worked for a venture-backed startup. Right. But as a founder, you can leave, but there's a significant cost to it. The second you say, I'm out, you're folding the tents. And, and that's a whole nother, you know, that's a, a whole nother thing to kind of roll around your head. But right. given the fact that this has a few different flavors, let's talk about, and you've actually been through this, sadly. I have. Let's talk about what actually happens. How does somebody get in that situation? And kind of what are the mechanics around what they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis when they're in it? Well, we see this a lot because we help people raise money on Fundable. And it happens in a few junctures. We get that first pass when we do that early seed round. As a founder, we're by far our most vulnerable, 
right? So, you know, we have this idea and we're excited about it, but we present the idea to investors and they get excited about it. And right now, all we can think about is I want this idea to succeed. I don't have money. You have money. Those terms are a little bit, you know, tough, but I'll take them because I just need to get this thing going. And so you take a 30, 40% haircut right out of the gates. And maybe you have co-founders, so you already took a 50% haircut right out of the gates or whatever your, your split was. Now you take that haircut again, but you're thinking, that's okay. The company's funded. You know, we're off and running. Uh, we got this going. What it doesn't occur to you yet is that this is going to keep happening. And if things go extremely well, you'll need even more money. Now you might get better terms or anything else like that. But what we don't consider is that every one of those slices, you can't get it back. So you're stuck with whatever that decision is. And in the future, if things just go decent, not amazing, you're still going to get crammed down over and over, late stage rounds, you name it. And no matter who you are, short of a handful of companies where you had some disproportionate slice of the equity and were able to kind of you know manage the vulnerability of your position, you're going to wind up in the single digits. And at some point, not every single digit company is going to go out like Uber. Right. I mean, a lot of single digit companies, best case, are going to do a small market acquisition, which means no matter how you multiply that, it's not going to be what you had in mind when you owned 100 percent of it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the other consideration is is time lost. And I'll give, you know, some relatively real examples of this. But I have a, a close friend who, look, it's not the worst salary in the world, but given his kind of his pedigree and what he's been able to accomplish, He's making $120,000 a year and will likely never see liquidity or meaningful liquidity because he's been so crammed down in this startup that he devoted the last almost decade to. That's hard to get excited about. Now, here's the thing, though. From an outsider standpoint, looking at it, like, oh, well, it's a viable company. You're taking a great salary, et cetera. You have no idea how long you had to work to get that salary, right? So a pretty common kind of netherworld for a lot of funded companies looks something like this. And, and if this applies to you, like lean in a little bit because you are not the only one. It looks like this. You're in year five, six, seven, maybe further. You're getting a decent executive compensation. And again, I, I always, I'm always mindful when I say decent because for some people, $100,000 is decent. For other people, it's $250,000. But it's not that much. And it's certainly less than what you could otherwise get in the market. And you're in this weird spot. You can't take distributions, even if you're profitable, because somebody else owns the cap table, and that's not the way venture-funded deals work. You can't get more money in salary because the company's not doing so extraordinarily well and everybody's still expecting you to invest in the company. And you can't leave because all of your equity is tied up into this one thing. <laughs> it's not <laughs> like if you leave, you all of a sudden get to take that with you, right? And you're also wondering, if I leave, will I put torpedoes in the very boat that I built, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's the, a, uh, unlike in a big corporate job, it's the golden anvil versus the golden parachute in this situation. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. I like that a lot. And so, you know, I, I think let's walk through a few cases of how founders get here. And let's also talk a little bit about what to do about it, how to think about it. And so... Let me throw out a couple examples that I've seen from friends firsthand and a little bit that I've actually gone through myself of where and how the, this, this cap table discussion breaks down sort of how we get here. First thing, 
again, just what I described before. We do the seed round, we take a big haircut. We do the A round, we do a big haircut. We do the B round, we take a big haircut. We keep waiting for that valuation or more importantly, liquidity to kind of catch up with that haircut we just took. We keep saying smaller slice of a bigger pie. What we lose in that translation is every time we grow, every time we take that other haircut, every time we add another capital partner, what we do is narrow our window even further to how many outcomes we can possibly have. At which point I own 3% of the company and I'm in my D round, the only outcome we can have is either massive or an IPO. Nothing else will back out for me. And yet it's all of my salary. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And the challenge is, and I think one of the things you're articulating well is every time you take money and your valuation goes up, you move the goalposts that much further for yourself, right? Yes. You raise a, a growth round and now all of a sudden a $20 million run rate is meaningless. It's said differently, you will never see any of that $20 million run rate, right? So you keep moving the goalposts further and further, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to rationalize. Now, the other side, and this is, this is tough, is this is how the model typically works, right? So right. you're following the same path, and a probably different outcome, as Uber and Tesla and other you know, unicorns and decacorns. This kind of is the process, but I think part of what we're trying to illustrate here is not everybody is Tesla or Uber. Well, that's the thing. Most companies, when they're in this spot, are doing single, maybe double-digit revenue. Right. People forget, like, look, if you've got something that's doing a hundred million and this is your issue, you'll probably be okay. <laughs> 99.9% of people are not having that issue. Most of us look something more like this. I've been at this for seven to 10 years, you know, maybe less, but more likely this. I've raised, doesn't matter how much money, but the company isn't far enough along that I can see any kind of meaningful exit that's going to translate to my percentage. That's going to translate to me ever getting out of this thing. And also, really, at some point, let's say you've got a $4 million company, $6 million company, if it doesn't get any bigger, there's also a limited number of places you can take that to an exit, and the multiplier there just doesn't really work in your favor. And here's the thing. It's not like nobody's thought of this. The investors know it. The rest of your team knows it. The only person coming to terms with this is you. And I think that's what messes with people, don't you think, that, like, that they're the only people that can, can, can't do something about it? It's such a catch-22 because it's almost the, the further along you can take, and I agree, by the way, if you're, if you're doing $100 million and you're a rocket ship, good on you and good luck. But again, for most people, the catch-22 comes in as a company typically progresses and it's a little lumpier and a little slower, your stake goes down, but your leash doesn't, <laughs> your leash continues to tighten, right? Because to your point right. earlier, you're, you are 100% tied to this thing. I did like what you said. If you bail the companies, just optically, the company's probably done. So, Correct. you know, you're, you're constantly taking your medicine at each phase as this thing grows or doesn't grow or gets, gets flat and then maybe has a little bit of a, an uptick. But what I was talking, when I was saying earlier, you get to a point where you're this thing that you were so desperately excited about and that kept you up at night in the right way, right? Like, I can't wait to solve this problem. I can't wait to put this right. in place. That's gone. And that's a really, really tough pill. It is. And what's amazing is how many people don't understand it. And so let me share a quick story with you of where I didn't understand it, even though I was a founder, even though someone was having a conversation with me about somebody else in the cap table. So 
years ago, I'm running this company. And what happened is, you know, I started this company, I had the bulk of the equity, and I brought in a partner to get it started. And he ended up running the company. But I had like 75% of the cap table, he had 25. Now, at first, that made sense because I was funding everything and I was putting the team together and he wasn't working on it. You know, he was working part time on it and I was working on it full time. So at the time, it made sense. Then we took on a few investors and, you know, we, we got, you know, pro rata diluted. And I'll never forget this. A couple of years later, we're fully into this. He's committed. He's running it full time. I'm off doing whatever it is that I do. And I'm at this event with one of the investors and the investors comes up to me and he said, look, we need to talk about the cap table. And I said, okay, what do you want to talk about? He said, you have too much equity. (laughs) You can imagine what my first response to that was, right? But I was like, okay, you know, this is really shocks me that you're saying this, like walk me through it. And here's what he said. He said, there's no way we're going to keep this person engaged as the CEO if they have the smallest stake in its outcome. And I said, well, I know they've got a pretty fair stake given how much time they've put into this and, and the lack of cash they've put into it, so on and so forth. And he says, I get it, I get it. But what we're doing every time we, we cram him down is we're taking his, his head out of this. We're actually at some level, you cross a point where you're disincentivizing an employee. Now, here's what I'm most embarrassed about. I didn't agree. I get it now, right? That's why I'm telling the story. I was a thousand percent wrong. But at that moment, I was kind of the investor, right? And I looked at it as like, you know, pardon my French, fuck this guy. Like, I love him. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> I was like, I worked so hard for my stake. Why should he get to take my stake just because he's, you know, because he doesn't feel like he has enough? And I, I remember being really angry about that. I, I felt like something was getting taken from me and I just didn't get it. Well, I get it now. And when I see it from the other side, I had a friend uh, that reached out earlier this year. And he said to me, look, I'm in the opposite side. You know, I'm, I'm in the, the ass end of the cap table. I'm in a point now where I just don't have enough incentive to move forward, even though I'm you know, seven, seven to 10 years into this thing. And he said, I don't feel like I can get out of it, but I don't know how to approach my investors to tell them that they've basically disincentivized me by cramming me down over and over. It is so funny because at that moment, I'm, I'm watching both sides of this equation. I'm remembering exactly how I felt when I was the investor. I remember exactly how he feels uh, when I'm the startup. So here's what I asked him to do. I said, go to your investors. Start with the one that's your most friendly investor and say to them, here's where I'm at. Just be very honest. Here's where I'm at. I understand why I got here, how I got here. This is on me. These are all my decisions. This isn't a finger pointing or anything else like that. But just numerically, Here's what I've got to live with right now. I'm taking a below market salary. I have, you know, probably another five or six years that I have to ride this thing out. I'm at a point in my life where I've got, you know, family, et cetera, that I've got to take care of so that I can't make the same decisions I could make before. And there's no version where we move forward where we raise more capital, no matter how well we do, where I actually come off in a better situation. So I'm basically, I'd be better off quitting right now than staying around for another day, but I want to stay here. So what can we do to kind of make me whole? And he had that conversation with the investors. And and, and lo and behold, if he had not had that conversation, no one would have had it for him. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And the problem here is most founders don't realize that that conversation can even be had, right? And I think part of that is we get so used to trailblazing this process and taking all of the risk that we forget to work with our investors and or other people in the company as partners, right? And if your investors 
and or whoever you have to have the conversation with is worth their salt, they should be appropriately receptive to kind of what you say. There's such a, here comes a really esoteric reference. There's such a lone ranger attitude for a founder that I think there's an aspect, and you can correct me on this, but I think there's an aspect that we're embarrassed to admit defeat or ask for help. You know what? I'll say this. I'll say this clearly. I would be embarrassed. I shouldn't be, but I would be embarrassed because at that point I've admitted failure, right? Okay. Right. I put seven fucking years of my life into this thing. And I told everybody in my life that this is what I was pursuing. I certainly was loud and proud about every round we raised and every metric that we hit. And at this point, I have to basically go to investors and or whoever else and call uncle and say, this thing's over. And here's, here's the problem. There's no version of a founder separating that the company failed versus they failed. Yeah, especially when it's not an, hasn't officially failed. We're making payroll. We've got revenues. We've got customers. We've got the things that we set out to do. It's just not paying me. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, and, and I think what's interesting is there may be some version where we assume that the investors are going to have this conversation for us. They're going to sit around and say, you know, Elliot really isn't getting the kind of compensation he deserves. I think we should really dig in <laughs> and, uh, and, and make sure we recap him, right? And you know what? And again, that's, what, so that's why I told you that story. Because even at that brief moment, when I essentially was the investor as far as the hat, that's exactly the way I felt. I felt like I deserve mine, you deserve yours, you know, end the conversation. And the truth is, that was such a weak move on my part right? I lacked total empathy. And it wasn't, it, and again, which is honest too, because this was actually one of my friends, a guy I actually like a lot. So it wasn't, it wasn't an indictment on him. It, it was more about how I felt about uh, my own stake. But you'd think if you were an investor, you'd look at all the investments that you make and think really long and hard about you know, what the incentive and comp structure would be for each of these investments and try to make sure they're optimized. Now, if you're an investor and you've been doing this long enough, you're probably on the other end of the spectrum. We were thinking to yourself, you know what? These these founders are overpaid to begin with. I'm the one putting in all the money, and you know they get a huge swath of stock just for you know uh, filing an incorporation. You know it's kind of bullshit. And again, there's some argument to that, but the truth is, if the founder doesn't take command of this situation, if the founder doesn't present it in a way that just numeric, kind of here's where I'm at, here's my outcome, et cetera. You know, here's here are my options. They're not great. I need a new plan. No one will ever do it for them. So essentially, we are in purgatory until we fire that bullet. I mean, there's really no other way around it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I think one of the important parts of having this discussion and getting the concept out there is to create a level of sobriety with founders, knowing that this is the typical process. And if they don't say anything, this will likely be the process that they have to adhere to, right? So whether you look at this and say, I'm never raising venture capital, right? Which, you know, is neither here nor there. Sometimes it's, it's an incredible asset to a company. But on the other side, if you do choose to raise, start having these conversations early. If you feel like something's a little sideways, you know, maybe it's your A round and you feel like you've been totally pushed down and you feel like your, your compensation from an equity standpoint or from a base salary standpoint feels off, have that conversation. Don't stick your head in the sand because there's no version of the investor, to, and you said this before, having a light bulb go off and saying, 
you know, I think we need to change uh, change things around a little bit with Will, right? <laughs> says nobody ever. Yeah, it says nobody ever. I, well, you know, it's it's at that point the corollary I think is kind of the the boss to employee, right? If you're an employee that never asked for a raise, how often do you think your boss would come and you say, you know, he, you just been doing such a great job, you haven't been asked for any money, but here's money. What do you think? <laughs> what, do you, what do you say? That sounds awesome. And yet, as founders, it doesn't occur to us that the boss, our bosses, aren't us anymore. The moment you, you sell, sell off your equity, you have a different boss. It's called your investor, and that's who you ask for more money from. And it's not unreasonable to come back to the board and say, look. This was my comp plan up till now. It's been a long time. I think we should talk about what's my comp plan over the next three to five years. And even if the board were to say, forget about it, not interested, you got what you got, you have to finish it or not, at least you start that conversation. Worst case, you get nothing. Best case, you start to open up the conversation around, you know, I need to be able to kind of see an upward path no different than anybody else that works here. And let's let me flip to the the investor side of this thing. When you come to them with that, unless they're overly principled on this, and, and I use that word a little bit loosely, if you come to them and and you have a valid point, and let's just use annual compensation as a piece. Let's not even use let's not even use equity here. If they can say, okay, this person needs to make another fifty to hundred k a year for me as the investor to feel like I can we can see this bet through. Not a huge deal, right? Let me build on that, can I? Yeah, yeah. What people forget about is that people negotiate comp deals on companies that already exist. Elon Musk negotiated a pretty good comp deal with Tesla <laughs> that made him like a hundred billionaire practically. <laughs> Steve Jobs negotiated a friggin' G5 when he came back to Apple, a hundred million dollar jet as part of his comp package, right? Neither of those were necessarily the biggest shareholders, but they negotiate comp packages based on milestones. What happens in a startup though, is we forget, like just too much time goes by and we forget that we're also employees. We're shareholders, but we also have to show up as employees. And just to stick with that for a second, our investors do not. They have stock just like we do, except they don't have to show up as employees. So what we should be thinking about if we wanna kind of reset our, our plan is what do milestone-based objectives look like for me? You know, what is my comp plan if I 2x the company? And here's why. Even if the stock price goes up, so to speak, at Apple or Tesla, et cetera, what really matters is that those massive payouts, those massive bonuses go directly to the founder, go directly to the CEO. And so there's no reason that if you're making, say, 150K, that you couldn't create a milestone plan that has you make 500K, assuming you're driving certain milestones and obviously driving the revenue that would pay for that. There's no reason not to have that conversation. And it's amazing how rarely that conversation takes place. I, I was thinking about a specific story. And, and again, I think that there, there is a bit of a flaw in the founder's mentality around what they can ask for and what they can do. Do you remember a good friend of yours that reached out to you that had like $5 million in cash sitting in his bank uh, because they'd done so well? And do you remember what your feedback was to him at that point? Take it. <laughs> Right, <laughs> it's your money. But take it. But I think he said something to the effect of, "Can I do that?" <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, he, he's not the only one. I've had this happen over and over and over. Where you know a company makes money, you know, makes a few million dollars, more money than it kind of needs for its stage, let's say, 
in because it's profitable, like, you know, the cash reserves aren't quite the same issue. They're not looking at burn. And you get into this weird spot where you're like, huh, you know, investors own maybe not that big of a percentage of the company, but isn't this all investor money? It's kind of not my money, right? And you forget that <laughs> that's not the way they look at it. <laughs> they don't look at it like, like, like it's it's your money or, is the, you know, their money and yours. They're saying, hey, I expect exactly my pro rata out of this, you know, whatever the cash is, and you should be expecting yours. It's tricky as hell. There's a million bylaws in between. But I think from a, a founder standpoint, it makes sense at some point to just rethink how you get paid. I think that the common thread continues to be founders don't necessarily need to be greedy. I mean, to an extent, but you got to take care of yourself. Absolutely. Uh, and, you, and you've got to feel good about asking those questions. It's funny. Anytime our company grows, inevitably, because it's, it's usually pretty loud and proud, we will, have, <laughs> this is so true. We'll have people come to us and I get it. And they'll say, uh, okay, you know, we just went, you know, I saw that we, we just launched this product and it's kicking ass. I want to talk about a raise, <laughs> right? Right. right? right. Yep. A yeah. founder would never, ever think about that to say, okay, we're doing much better. I want to talk to the investors and maybe change my comp plan a little bit. It's diluted. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, Initially, the idea is that your huge swath of equity back when you had one uh, was your comp plan. And, you know, you increase the value of equity, you increase your comp. But what nobody tells you about what's kind of not in the manual is that at some point when you shift from idea to full fledged company. And again, it sometimes depends on on what the trajectory and, and economics of the business are. At some point, you actually have to step back hit the reset button and say, okay, I had just equity and maybe a crappy salary for a very long time when we were thought it was going to be all upside. But now this story's played out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now I kind of know how big or not big this thing is going to be. And it's time for me to reset what my expectations are. Because here's the funny thing. Everyone else already has. The employees have, the investors have, everyone else has figured out how much investment they're going to make in this thing except for the founder. The founder is still stuck in their previous era where it was going to be a billion dollars or bust. It's sometimes, and I think you you nailed this, it's sometimes an emotional, maybe embarrassing moment where you feel like if I admit that the company isn't what I thought it was going to be, that I've, I've failed in some way. But that's also tantamount to saying I was 100% sure I could predict the future, which oh, right. would be amazing. You know right. what I mean? Right. And the irony is it can be a company doing $7 million a year that's relatively healthy that might not have as an expansive as a, of a TAM as they bet on. Right? Right. So right. solid company. Numbers are pretty good. Their equity is, is almost nil. I'll say this. If you're a founder, put yourself in a position where you want to keep working there. That's a great way to put it. Also, put yourself in a position where it can be lucrative for you. So in other words, let's say you're at that $7 million run rate, and which is a good place to be. You have to kind of recalibrate and say, look, working for all equity made sense when I thought this was going to be a $100 million or a billion dollar company. But it's not. It's $7 million this year, might be $8 million next year, et cetera. I've got to look at this and say, if this isn't going to pay out big in equity, which it may or may not, what are my cash options? Now, to be fair, maybe there are none. Maybe the company doesn't make enough money that you can make a, you know, have any cash options. But why not at least set some milestones to say, look, if I'm going to put in another, you know, five to seven years, whatever it takes to be here, what do I need to do in order to hit some milestones in order to kind of level up a bit? And maybe the answer is nothing, in which case 
you should be able to look at the opportunity at that point and say, I'm either all in or I'm not. That's a wrap for this episode of the Startup Therapy Podcast. This is Ryan Rutan on behalf of my partner, Will Schroeder, and all the Startups.com family thanking you for joining us. And we hope you'll continue to join us. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes or wherever you love to listen to Startup Therapy. You can find all of our episodes at startups.com slash podcast. If you're looking for more amazing resources to launch or grow your startup, be sure to head to startups.com and check out Startups Unlimited. It's everything we have to offer from our online university to our amazing community of experts and founders, and even all the tools we've built like BizPlan, Fundable, and LaunchRock. It's everything a founder needs. Visit startups.com slash begin. That's startups.com slash B-E-G-I-N. You'll thank me later.